For Agility's Sake. Welcome to For Agility's Sake, where we tell the story of Amway's agile journey with the goal of sharing the lessons and experiences of the practitioners, leaders, and everyone involved in our transformation at Amway. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Kyle Spitzley. With me today is Ritu Ghosh from Wipro. How you doing, Ritu? I'm doing great, Kyle. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show with me. I'm excited to talk with you. So for the audience out there, uh, Ritu joins us from Wipro, where she is the general manager and the head of the DevSecOps transformation. And she's with Wipro for close to 20 years, has experience in many parts of that organization, and has gone through the transition from you know being a waterfall or traditional style manager into an agile or servant type leader. And so I've asked Ritu to join this on the show and just talk about her experience, what she's gone through herself, as well as what she's helped other clients go through. And so this is meant to uh, help our leaders with some specific tactical things we can do to uh, be better agile leaders. So with that, Ritu, I'm going to ask you if you would tell the audience a little bit about yourself and your experience, and then specifically, what was it like on your transition from a waterfall leader or a traditional style manager moving to a more agile type of leader? Thanks, Kyle. And hello to all the people who are listening to me today. I uh, really appreciate uh, having me over here sharing some of my uh, insights. As Kyle mentioned, I've been in Wipro for a fairly long time. And, uh, you know, I have, uh, I've literally grown up in my career as far as Wipro is concerned. And it's, it's, been a, it's been a very interesting journey for me because while I have done a host of things, I've been in a ma managerial role for, you know, I think within the first four or five years. And uh, I've seen, when I look back, I've seen the kind of transition that I have had. I've always... Uh, you know, and, and I grew up being a fairly traditional manager, what we now call the command and control manager, because that's the, those are the kind of exemplars uh, that uh, I, have, I had seen in the initial parts of my career. So it was mm. all of, uh, you know, say what I do. Uh, and uh, we used to have a joke that you say jump and I say how high. Mm. Uh, so that's the kind of, you know, really the managerial style that used to exist uh, about... Uh, 15, 20 years back. And from then, you know, the transition into the new age manager, I think it's been a very, very interesting journey because uh, it, it's, it's really been a retraining of oneself uh, to break down and unlearn a lot of the um, anti-patterns or the bad behaviors, as I like to call them, and move on to really learning new things. I think that's the biggest thing that I have seen, and it's uh, and the reason why I say that uh, you know it's a hard journey because for me it's still a it's still a learning uh, learning curve for me. So every single day there's a new thing that I end up learning. So I call myself a practicing servant leader because great servant leaders, if you look at uh, you know you, if you look at Reverend King, and he's an example of a great servant leader. I think to imbibe those values. It takes a lot of time and a lot of effort and a lot of change in one's own personality as well. So it's something that you strive for each day. You slip a little, but then as long as you understand where you're going wrong, it makes it, makes it easier to take the corrective steps the next day. So I mean, it, seems, it seems like it's a, a lifelong journey, you know, as you're describing that, right? Something that is always 
in your your line of sight that you're pursuing and not something that you achieve and check the box. Yes, yes. But for instance, it's so easy to slip back, especially when you're under pressure. It's so easy to slip back into the command and control mode and say that, you know, just go ahead and do this, right? Because I know this is the right thing without really showing the empathy to the other person or, or even hearing a differing uh, opinion or a dissenting opinion uh, because, hey, you're under pressure and, you know, this is the way it's always worked for you and you know it's going to work. So you don't even open yourself up to the opportunity of listening something which might work even better, right? So those are the things that uh, one needs to watch out for, one needs to look out for. And uh, as I said, uh, reflection, self-reflection, I think is a very big part of uh, this journey. For some, it's easy. For some, it's hard, especially, you know, people who have um, fairly strong opinions and a lot of lot of leaders who come from a command and control moral style like I did. And I've seen people have very strong opinions. It becomes maybe a little bit tougher for them. But as long as the intent is there, I think that's something which everybody can strive for. Yeah, that's great. I feel like there's, you know, my experience has been that in some areas, there's more of that command and control and other areas, it's, it's more of the, you know, give the team the autonomy and give them space to dissent uh, and create psychological safety. And a lot of it has to do with the manager and who their leader is and, yeah. and the environment that's being created by the leaders around them. When you, you know, look back on your experience at Wipro, and you were, I think you just described to me earlier, you know, a number of the departments that you were part of, yeah. if you would for our audience just kind of quickly go through all the areas that you've been exposed to at Wipro and can you speak to a little bit of that the variety of, of leadership styles and, and how it looked different across okay. those sure uh, so my first role in Wipro I was a corporate brand I actually came from a marketing organization so I was a corporate brand manager and that was a small stint uh, that I did uh, used to work with almost all of the senior leaders uh, in Wipro, and I think at that time, the style was more of a consensus building. Uh, I then moved on to being a distribution manager where I worked with external external uh, partners in, in trying to build up a distribution network for the organization. That, the style in that particular role was definitely a lot more command and control, especially because you were working with external partners. And I'm using the term partners right now. Um, and that's something which I have trained myself to do because it's so easy to slip into, you know, referring to external entities that you work with as vendors. Um, mm. And yet you expect them to give their best to you. So unless you even start thinking of themselves, of those people as your partners, it becomes very difficult to get the, you know, reciprocal respect and interest. And that's something which I've said, the reason why I use this word consciously, and that's something which I've trained myself over the last couple of years specifically, is because a lot of times when we as a service provider, when we work with multiple clients, it's very important that we train ourselves to think as a partner to the client rather than a vendor for the client. Uh, yeah. So those are, you know, the small changes that you end up doing. Um, well, yeah, that one's so that one's so good because it stands out. You know, vendor is to me. It reminds me of a vending machine. I put yeah. money in, I push buttons, and something yeah. comes out. Like that's right. not a partnership, right? Yeah, exactly. I love that. Exactly. Yeah, uh, my my next role, which I did for uh, I think about eight or nine years, was uh, I was we had a consulting uh, the consulting group, which was 
uh, being put together. So I joined that consulting group and I played a host of roles right from the marketing manager to the sales manager to the overall uh, head of the business. And I think the initial days when I look back, uh, I was an absolute nightmare to have worked with. <laughs> Um, and, and I can give you certain examples, right? So I was working with one of my team members and he was responsible for a particular um, particular geography. And we were having our reviews and this gentleman had uh, tried to work, you know, he was we were reviewing his numbers and his targets. He had tried a lot of things and he was just not successful. Um, so I was obviously giving him a very hard time. And after a while, he got frustrated and he said that, you know, I'm not able to do it. Uh, why don't you do it? I remember having having told him, and I literally cringe when I think of it now. I remember having told him that, you know, that's your job. You're supposed to do your job. Please don't ask me to do your job for you. It's your problem. Figure it out. You know, and, and that's a huge, huge change. If I look at my current style, uh, when my teams come and tell me that they are not able to do something, uh, I take the time out to understand and give them solution because the very fact that you know, in that case, that gentleman was frustrated and he told me. Um, in a lot of cases today, I create, uh, I think I've been able to create that safe space where teams feel um, teams feel comfortable to come and tell me that, you know, we are not able to do something. Um, and I try to, instead of asking them why not, I try to help them because if they knew the answer to their problem, they would not have come to me. And that I think as leaders, especially as agile leaders, that's going to be one big shift that one needs to bring about because a lot of time as leaders, when we review teams, when we review activities, uh, we tend to not realize that if there's a problem which is being raised, it's being raised because the solution is not known or the people who are facing that problem has not been able to find the solution because if they had found the solution, they would not have raised it in the first place. Mm. Uh, so how do you do that? How do you really start uh, giving your teams that safe space. So we talked about, uh, you know, fail fast, fail frequent, etc. Right now, failure. As much as you know, theoretically, it's very great that you know you do small experiments, you fail fast, you learn from them. But uh, it it automatically brings with itself a negative connotation because nobody likes to fail. So if you really want to create that environment, you have to create that safe space. As you said, the psychological safety for people. So if people know that, you know, if I say that I've not done something because of genuine reasons, I've not been able to complete something because of genuine reasons uh, or any impediment which I'm facing, if I'm going to get penalized, then I would rather give the bad news towards the end. And because, uh, you know, I, I, I'll hope and pray that I'm able to figure out something uh, but yeah. before the end comes, right? Like a Hail Mary or last, you know, a yeah. miracle at the end. Exactly. These, exactly. these two situations, it feels like, you know, in that first situation, the fellow you worked with, and, and thank you for being so vulnerable and honest about this, you know, looking back at your career. Um, the the first situation, the the fellow gets to the point of complete frustration yeah. and it's it's not, it doesn't feel safe. And it's more of like a, a, a 
a kind of a breakdown to say like, I can't do this, you do this. Yeah. And in the other case, it's it's probably more likely that the team feels safe, feels mm -hmm. like they can come and ask questions, right. you know, today. And that creates more opportunities for coaching where you can help yeah. continue to develop the team yeah. because yeah. you've created that space and you've created the, the safety. You're going to get more chances to develop your team versus to, you know, just beat them down for not not accomplishing their goals or meeting their targets. So I love that. Exactly. And I think one more thing, which is very important for leaders to to realize that a lot of times, uh, you know, um, our physicality, right, might give up, give off a feeling that we are we are angry. For example, when I speak uh, or when I get, you know, when I talk fast, my voice, my volume automatically rises. Um, I've got a very expressive pair of large eyes, so my eyes grow big. <laughs> So a lot of times that can, in a non-verbal way, uh, it can look as if I'm becoming aggressive. Uh, and that might put the other person on the back foot. And the person might think to himself that himself or herself that, you know, I'm not going to talk about it. Right. So it is I think you talked about vulnerability. So one of the things which I do is I tell people that, you know, it is OK. It is OK to, you know, come up with different opinions there's not going to be any penalization around it. When they see that kind of openness, they, they sort of realize that, yes, there is indeed a safe space. So I think that's very important where you uh, tell very clearly to your teams what they should expect. Uh, because if you don't do that, despite your best of interest, the team might take something very wrongly, just reading, you know, taking some nonverbal cues, uh, which might not be something which you are consciously uh, trying to portray. It feels like you're giving permission for that dissent and you're allowing the team to have that dissent. And I think giving permission is just the first step, right? And then, then it's actually following through and not penalizing that dissent or not shaming someone for dissenting right. that makes it uh, a, a truly safe space. Yeah. And I, so I think that, you know, as a leader, we've got to make sure that we're making it clear to the team that, yeah, I might raise my voice. I might my eyes might get big or yeah. we might have this heated discussion. But when it's over, we're still on the same team. We're still working towards the same goals and exactly. we're here to support each other. Right. Exactly. Exactly. I think I that's uh, that's very important. Those are some of those have been some of my learnings. And, and as I mentioned, uh, you know, an aspiring aspiring servant leader i think one of the one of the my most important lessons and this is i will quote a gentleman called steve denning who writes extensively on forbes uh, and i you know i have this quotation uh, on my desk uh, it says that you know an organization should respect a hierarchy of competence and not a hierarchy of authority mm. and um, that is such a powerful statement because especially in the agile world, the smartest guy in the room need not be the most senior or the most experienced um, or even the leader of the team. Because today, agile teams, cross-functional teams, they're doing so many different things, right? Uh, you know, you've, you've got Kubernetes and serverless and cloud and application modernization and whole host of things which are happening. Uh, and it is it is going to be almost impossible for an individual, especially a leader, uh, you know, to gain a deep level of expertise around all of those areas. 
So if you create a culture within the organization that you will listen to somebody who has the expertise, even if that guy is a junior guy, um, I think that is something which is very important in, in building the right kind of culture uh, in the organization. Because, uh, you know, very frankly, today's youngsters, I think especially the millennials, the amount of knowledge and the expertise that they have uh, can, can definitely give, you know, at least an um, old person like me a run for, run for my money. Uh, mm -hmm. So I think having that kind of a culture in the organization is also very important uh, when you're making that transition uh, to an agile, uh, you know, to an agile organization. I love that quote from Denny. It's just, it's so spot on with what we need right now with the proliferation of technology and, and how many, you know, new things are on the horizon. It's just, there's no way a person is going to be an expert in all of those things. Yeah. And if you're making judgments based on a little bit of shallow knowledge, you're probably not going to make the best judgments. And so yeah. I think this is an incredibly important point for our leaders to understand is that just because someone in the room is the most senior does not mean they're the best person to make the decision. Bringing together the people who have the right sets of expertise to work together to solve a problem is going to help us get what we need. And Do you have any advice on how we would create that culture of hierarchy of competence? I think definitely in terms of the kind of uh, kind of learning or the, or the skill building program which is there in the organization. Uh, is important. And I think, uh, you know, while technical skills are important, it's also very critical that people undergo uh, behavioral skills uh, as well as team building skills, because it's it's so easy to get into the model of, you know, I'm going to do things all by myself. Uh, but in the agile world where, you know, you're working in small teams, which are networked, uh, it's very, very important that you are, you have that ability or you learn those softer skills, uh, which become very critical. The other important thing I think, which is, you know, which organizations uh, need to remember, and especially organizations which are not born on the web, and this is something which I've seen with a lot of our clients, including at Wipro as well, um, is that, you know, a lot of times skill building tends to focus on the, uh, on the technical skills of the youngsters or the developers or the engineers. I think it's also very important to start um, inculcating those skills within the middle managers uh, so that you move away just from uh, managing engineers to becoming, as we like to call it, an engineering manager. So you understand, you might not have the in-depth expertise, but at least you're able to understand what exactly is happening because otherwise you just end up becoming a kind of an aggregator um, at the end of the day. I think that becomes very important. The third thing which is critical uh, would be to really recognize and reward uh, the entire skill building, uh, you know, and, and the competency development plans which people have. Because today we are actually telling people that, you know, uh, from being an I-shaped individual where you have a competence in only one area, you have to become a T-shaped individual. So you have comp in-depth competency in one area and you have a breadth of competency in one or two more areas uh, such that you know as a team you can be a cross-functional team it becomes very important to give the right rewards and recognition to people because you know team members are actually trying to deliver their work as well as spending time to uh, to pick up new skills uh, 
So unless, you know, one strategy which I've seen certain organizations do is keep out specific time for people. For example, within Wipro, it's a mandate that you know you have to have uh, 10 days of formal classroom-based training uh, every year, apart from the informal online trainings that you have. Uh, mm. So making available the opportunities for skill building, as well as rewarding and recognizing teams, I think that's also very important to really build that culture of uh, you know, continuous learning and build that culture of expertise within the organization. Mm, I love that Wipro has you know mandated that 10-day formal yeah. classroom training because a lot of people that I know, and even myself included, we know that we should do that training. We know we should develop skills and spend time on that, but you get busy with the work yeah. that's in front of you. And you get, oh, I don't have time for that. I can't slow down. I'm trying to you know, ship this next thing. And right. you get too busy trying to, to you know, deliver and, and hit dates and, and meet goals that you forget that you've got to take time to, to sharpen the ax that you're right. using to cut down those trees. Um, so I think that's fantastic because while we encourage it and you know uh, and even amway will fund it and pay for people's personal development a lot yeah. of times it doesn't happen because yeah. we're too busy trying to deliver on something else right. so i love that and so it sounds like you, you we spoke about this before mm. um in one of our earlier calls talking about the t-shaped individual mm. versus an i-shaped individual and, and we know we want to be t-shaped and you mentioned you've met a couple of uh, you know comb shaped where yeah. they've got expertise in multiple areas. And that triggered right. a thought for me, not just about an individual who's obviously, you know, an expert in multiple areas, but about how a team should form. And a team should become a comb, right? That when you yes. when you bring together the right people with the right skill right. sets and expertise, you're yeah. creating a good comb-based team. And I just thought that was a really cool visual way to look at yeah. expertise and think about depth of knowledge. And when you're forming a team or building a team, those right. are the, the things, the gaps that you look for and figure out how do I fill those in to build the best team. Right. Um, so I love that. Thank you for sharing it. Are there any questions that I didn't ask that I should have? Um, I think, you know, a couple of things which I just wanted to point about, uh, you know, point out and discuss maybe. And we had a discussion on this earlier that, you know, what are some of the other things that leaders leaders should do? And, you know, uh, I will tie back to servant leadership. Uh, really adopting servant leadership, uh, it, it's, a, it's a big paradox, right? And it requires a constant balance. Uh, because simply speaking, you know, in servant leadership, uh, you have to be, as I, as I say, you have to be great enough, but yet be without pride. What it fundamentally means that, you know, when you're working and when there is success, you have to have a mode where you say that, you know, the success is because of my team. So you don't say that, you know, I'm the leader and hence I made the team successful. And yet when there is failure, uh, you again as a leader step up and say that, you know, the failure is I take accountability for that failure and the failure should not be attributed to the to my team. So having that balance uh, become, becomes very, very important because a lot of times, uh, you know, we get into this uh, finger pointing mode, we do post-mortems. One of the things that we always talk about is how do you do blameless post-mortems, right? Because it is so very easy to say that a problem happened and here's an individual who made a P1 error and, you know, he's going to get penalized. But that's really not a blameless post-mortem nor does it build a sense of comfort or the psychological safety that we were talking about earlier. So to have that balance becomes, becomes very, very important. Um, again, you know, having that balance of saying that, you know, you have to say, you have to be right enough to say that I'm wrong. So 
acknowledging that as a leader, uh, you can make mistakes. I think that's very important. Uh, your team, your staff should know that, you know, you're human. Now, telling sorry to the team does not take away from uh, your position as a leader or your authority or anything of that sort. Uh, so when mistakes are made, I think as a servant leader, it becomes very important to uh, to stand up and say that, okay, you know, I goofed up. I'm sorry. Mm. Or one of the things which I always do is, you know, let's say we're having a very heated conversation uh, and maybe I have made a remark which I shouldn't have. Uh, with, I, I make it a point because it's, it's when you say something as an individual, you always realize that you're saying something that you, that you shouldn't have. Uh, but I make mm. it a point that within five minutes, I take a stop and I say that, hey, you know what? I shouldn't have said that. I take my word back. I'm sorry. I apologize. <laughs> Yeah, that takes a lot of, of humility and vulnerability. And, you know, I feel like you, two points here you've made. One is separating people from the problem. Like when you do a post-mortem, we have to be able to separate people from the problem. And, mm. and that allows the person like yourself to acknowledge their own shortcoming or failure versus right. us blaming and putting it on them. And I think creating that space where we we make an attempt as a as a community to try and separate people from the problem, that gives people the safe space to say, I'm sorry, I made a mistake and learn from that mistake versus being penalized for that mistake. Right. I love that. Right. Yeah. Uh, and I'll, you know, we talked about the hierarchy of um, competence versus the authority earlier. I think it's some, the next thing I'll, I'll tie to that is that you have to have to have to be wise enough to admit that you don't know, right? Mm -hmm. Again, you know, trying to do, a, and at times you get into this mental frame that, you know, I'm the leader, I'm supposed to know everything. How can I say that I'm not aware of something? So let me just try and, you know, bluff my way out of something. Mm. It, it, it doesn't work. So uh, again, whether it be your teams, whether it be, you know, your to your leaders, or to your stakeholders telling that, you know, I don't know, but I'll find out and I'll find out and I'll, and I'll come back to you and I'll let you know. I think that's very important. And I'm sure, you know, a lot of these things which I'm saying, none of this is new, but right. we become even more critical in the new world order because the kind of agile organization, agile teams that we are trying to create demands leaders to really start internalizing all of these new behaviors. So what was, you know, a good to have thing earlier, uh, today it's like a must have, you know, you have to have that openness and that wiseness to say that, you know, I don't know, I'm going to figure out and I'll let you know. Yeah, and that's a scary thought sometimes, you know, going to going to your own leader and telling them, I don't know, and not trying to bluff your way through it. But I think that's, like you said, that's a requirement, that's necessity for us to continue to grow and continue to deliver at the pace yeah. of change that the, the world is going through right now. We, yeah. we have to take those nice to haves and make them must haves and work on them. Uh, I would also like to, you know, add one more point and, you know, this is for the leaders who are listening. I'm sure, you know, you guys must be thinking that, oh, this is all touchy feely. You, you end up becoming a very soft person. No, I think one of the big things of being a good servant leader is that you have to be compassionate, but you have to be compassionate enough to be really disciplined. And that's the balance that you're trying to, trying to, uh, trying to set uh, for yourself. So you should not come off as a soft or, you know, 
a, a doormat, somebody that one can walk all over. You have to have high expectations from your teams and, and stick to those high expectations. Now, if somebody has a problem, let's say, you know, the system is not available or, you know, they have a personal commitment. Definitely, I, I'm not saying that, you know, you, you have to make the leeways for that. So maybe give the person a, a system. Uh, you know, if the person has a personal commitment, give it a, give him, him or her an additional period of time. But once somebody has made a commitment, you have to hold him or her accountable for to that commitment. Because if you're not doing that, you end up being unfair to all the rest of your team members who always kept up to their commitment. So that is the balance that as a servant leader, you need to keep on driving. Because just because you're moving away from a command and control model doesn't mean that you let go of these things because this also will become very important as a part of your leadership repertoire that you are seen as a fair and just person who all, who treats the team fairly and when you are treating the team fairly you are holding them up to the high expectations holding everybody up to those high expectations i'm so glad you shared that because you're absolutely right that it feels like if we're just letting the teams you know dissent and do what they want and we're not the expert and we can't tell them when to do it or what to do as a leader it makes me feel almost helpless like well what am i supposed to do so i love that you add that because it's it's part of the as you said you know being a, a just and fair leader it's a lot like having children you want to give them space to discover and fail and learn on their own but you also have to help guide them to you know the right things in, in life and, and, you know, helping them understand where to develop or, or what needs to happen. You still have to have some accountability. So yeah. the example that comes to mind that you shared with me before was, you know, don't, don't give the team a date to hit, ask mm. them when they can deliver. And if they yeah. give me a, a day or a range, hold them accountable to that, yeah. not to yeah. the date that I want to set. And so and then that just seems fair because you're asking yeah. the team, when is it possible for this to happen? And the team knows based on their velocity, based on how technically difficult this thing is, this right. is when we'll probably be able to do it. And that that is a, a, a great way to get a clear estimate that has valid assumptions that aren't just from me looking in from the outside and saying, oh, I think you could do this in two months because it seems simple. Um, yeah. That is often over or grossly misunderstood estimate. So. I think that's a fantastic addition. Thank you for sharing that. Also, as you know, as leaders, we used to put ourselves in a kind of an ivory tower. You're in the corner room, you're in the corner cabin, and the doors are closed, etc. And I, I have seen a client, and this is a financial services client uh, who's based out of United Kingdoms, and their office it's it's a it's a completely open floor, and they actually converted an old warehouse into an office. And it's not as if they're a born on the web shop. They are actually a shop. They're actually an organization with I think about a hundred years of history. And uh, mm. they went for a completely open office. There is only one, there are a couple of, there are obviously a lot of discussion rooms and phone booths where people can have one-on-one -on -one conversation. And there is one room for the, for the CIO, uh, but that room also has glass doors, uh, has glass walls. Uh, so, that it, so that it's completely visible. You know, half the time the CIO really comes out and, you know, sits with the team and works directly with the team. So I think making those kind of small changes, 
giving the team the view that, you know, I'm rolling up my sleeve if required and I can work shoulder to shoulder with you. I think that becomes, again, very important, uh, you know, when you're trying to do this entire culture change. Otherwise, it becomes a case of do as I say and not as I do. It mm -hmm. has to become a case of uh, do as I say and as I do. And for the last part, you know, as leaders, we have to make those changes to ourselves, saying that, am I working with the teams and am I sharing their problems? Am I rolling up my sleeves? I've seen, you know, very senior leaders when people are, you know, doing a particular demo, let's say there are people standing and I've seen a particular leader actually get chairs for the team members to sit in. So wow. I think leaving a lot of the egos and the sense of the self outside of the door, if, if one is able to do that, I think that would really make a, make a leader very, very successful in, in today's world. And you're absolutely right. I have two people in mind that I've worked with here at Amway. You know, one that uh, has that I've spent a lot of years with. Great, great person, but um, is often disengaged with the team. They're busy spending time in the rooms with other leaders and kind of managing up. And so they feel very disengaged from the team. And then another leader who did what you said, basically turned their office into a workspace for other people to use. And they were sometimes in there working, you know, as it was their office. And other times teams were in there using the whiteboard and, and the computers. And, and that person, that leader would be out working with the team somewhere else. And yeah. they would be on the floor with the team and working shoulder to shoulder. And I can tell you from talking to the team members that report up to those leaders, there's a very different perspective of which one has the respect, which one has the success, um, which one is, you know, really developing the team and creating a, a, a great place to work and a lot of value for the organization. And so you're spot on. Um, that's something that we all have to work on. I'd like to just mention, I know I've been, I've been giving a lot of these, uh, you know, these examples from what I've seen, but I just like to mention a last thing that, uh, you know, as servant leaders, one of the things that is said that, you know, you have to, you have to listen, you have to actively listen. And the problem that a lot of us face is that we are too busy uh, we are too busy to listen to people because, you know, there's always this new mail. Uh, there's always this other deadline to get to. And uh, today we have the, we have the, the, you know, the curse of the cell phones. So you mm -hmm. go into meetings, you know, everybody has a cell phone and people are checking their mails while somebody is speaking. And um, Simon Sinek, and that's a gentleman whom I, whom I, whom I read a lot, read, read off a lot and I follow him a lot. And Simon Sinek actually says that, you know, when you're in a, in a group meeting and you have a cell phone on the table, that itself shows a sign of disrespect, irrespective of whether the cell phone is turned down, turned up, whatever. But it basically gives a nonverbal cue that the person on the other side is not important enough uh, for you uh, and you are preferring the cell phone to the conversation that the other individual uh, is having with you. And that's something which, uh, you know, I try to do when I, when somebody has a camera, you know, has, is having a conversation with me, I try to keep my cell phone away or I try to, you know, not look at my computer screen, but, um, that's, uh, that's a big, that's one of my next, you know, mountains to cross. How can I give my, my hundred percent attention to the person in front of me? Uh, because that's something else which a lot of us fall prey to, is that we are, we are, we are so busy that we are unable to listen uh, to what the other person, other person is saying. In fact, um, 
HBR had a very great, good article called Beware the Busy Manager, right? And I would mm-hmm. recommend if you can get that article to read that up. But uh, busy managers, I think, uh, don't help, uh, especially in a world where, you know, you have to really react very, very fast because that's what agility is all about. So if the team is facing a problem, is if there is some challenge which is there, it's important that the leader listens uh, to the, you know, to the verbal, to the unsaid cues and uh, react fast to it. So if attention, due attention is not being provided, I think, uh, you know, there can be problems down the line. So that's another thing which I would definitely want to mention at this point in time. Yeah. And it's a little bit different in today's world where we're all virtual, right, on the phone and talking through screens. But you can still tell. I can still tell when someone's looking at their phone or typing an email, you know, on a different screen. It's obvious that they're not paying attention. And that that's definitely a, a it's kind of a, a ding on the respect. It feels yeah. like I'm not important enough for your attention. Right. Um, so it's even I think it's even more important now because we're always in front of the screen just to talk to people in a lot of cases, you know, yeah. so. Oh, this has been great, Ritu. Thank you so much for taking the time to share with us. I really appreciate having you on the show. Um, and I hope to stay in touch and talk with you more and continue to learn from you. So thank you very much. Thank you for having me, Kyle. I do hope this helped you as well as your team. Please do feel free to reach out to me and we have to continue our conversation. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review and share it with others. To learn more about Amway's Agile journey, follow the hashtag AmwayAgile on Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn. And if you're an employee, do that and search Amway Agile forward slash in your browser.